Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. We talk elitism, Leo data, free speech and research. It's all coming up. Uh, You know, no one loves a nice app more than I do. But in terms of helping you make life choices, uh, there is no substitute for professional, intelligent, tailored careers advice, which of course doesn't exist on the whole in our um, pre-18 education system anymore. And frankly, uh, a gamified choice routes through to uh, a graduate career. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education policy, people and politics. Uh, Rachel is away this week drinking wine. So you've got me, Jim Dickinson, live from the Festival of Higher Education here in sunny Buckingham. Uh, But much more importantly, here to pick the pineapple off the pizza of policy as usual, we have three fantabulous guests in the East Midlands. We have the University of Nottingham's Registrar, Paul Greatrix. Paul, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week was slightly sad for me, which was my last ever meeting as a member of the board of HESA. And it's been great to be a part of HESA. Terrific agency, love it to bits. Huge number of challenges through being the new designated data body and with graduate outcomes. But it's a fantastic team, great staff, and I've really enjoyed being a member of the board. So a bit of a highlight tinged with sadness. Excellent. And in London, we have Associate Director of Governance Advantage HE and Director of Policy at IDP to connect, Aaron Porter. Aaron, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight comes from across the pond, um, and it's a nice contrast from the Conservative Party leadership contest. The Democratic, the, the Democratic Party, even, have kicked off with their first big debate. They have 20 candidates uh, in the field, and actually higher education and the cost of tuition is one of the big ticket items out there. And it's an interesting contrast with the two candidates vying to be our next Prime Minister, uh, one of them at least, Boris Johnson can't seem to really um, uh, give us proper scrutiny, whereas the Democratic Party, they really have uh, a wide open field and lots of coverage and lots of scrutiny of what's going on out there. And live from a set of DJ decks somewhere in Shoreditch, we have Wonky's own Artie Natchapan. Artie, your highlight of the week, please. <laughs> yeah, even at 9, 9.30am. <laughs> um, my highlight of the week has been, basically, I'm speaking to a group of students um, doing interviews for an article that I'm hopefully going to have up next week or the week after. And it's just been really, really interesting to hear about their experiences in higher education and how they're different. And then trying to, for the article, kind of draw a link to what this could mean for policy. So I'm having a great time speaking to students about this. So hopefully you'll see that article soon. Fabulous. So yes, we start this week with the news that 16% of vice-chancellors at UK universities were privately educated, compared with 7% of the general population. That's according to the Elitist Britain 2019 report that was published this week by the Sutton Trust and the Social Mobility Commission. Paul, take us through this one. It's a really interesting report. It comes out uh, every year. And uh, I think the, I mean, what it shows is that, as you would expect, those at the very uh, top of the uh, tree have uh, very similar backgrounds in terms of their independent schooling and their Oxbridge education. Um, But I think it's 
quite surprising to me, actually, the, the diversity or relative diversity of, of the vice-chancellor makeup compared with senior civil servants and top journalists and um, members of the cabinet. Because only, uh, and you may say this is uh, uh, quite a lot, but 16% attended an independent school, 16% of our vice-chancellors, and that's down 4% since 2014. A third of them attended a grammar school and the, the remainder attended a comprehensive school, which is up 13% since 2014. So uh, it, it is quite interesting because one always imagines, I think, that uh, and the way that vice chancellors are represented in the press, that they are uh, very, very much part of this kind of uh, elite who everyone is uh, kicking against at the moment. So it is perhaps surprising. Having said that, it is still obviously very, very different from the population as a whole, uh, a much smaller percentage of whom are privately educated, um, and certainly very different from uh, professional footballers, uh, where very few um, are privately educated. But what does it say about the job of Vice-Chancellor and what's required to lead a UK university? I'm not certain it tells us a terribly large amount. Other than that, actually, you need better careers education in schools and universities need to be better at uh, providing careers education to their students, which we kind of knew anyway. Aaron, the one I thought was interesting was that um, in this in this little report, pop stars are much more elitist than vice chancellors. Yes, well, I, I thought that was interesting. My biggest takeaway was um, was between different sports. Uh, followers of my uh, Twitter will get annoyed by my comments about kind of cricket and football, but over forty percent of uh, England's cricket team, men's cricket team, were were went to uh, private schools, whereas just five percent of uh, international football players uh, who played uh, for the England national team. So it's really interesting. Some of this kind of is really surprising. Uh, but when you look at the civil service permanent secretaries up at 60%, members of the House of Lords at, at 60%, there's a long way to go in some uh, uh, areas of uh, that, that lead our society. Artie, I mean, one of the things that also struck me was it, 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 it's, it's always dangerous to take universities as kind of one lump. And as such, it's probably dangerous to take vice chancellors as one lump. But we don't know the kind of social makeup of the vice chancellors that are normally in the press, the Russell Group ones. Yeah, I think that's... I think. That's definitely part of the issue because you just take a really small sample that you see and then you kind of extrapolate from that basis. And that's why you come to kind of um, decisions like, oh, that's not what I expected. I thought it'd be more because I completely agree with Paul that um, when I first saw this, I was thinking, oh, really, I really expect it to be a lot higher in the kind of um, the... The, they listen, they'd put them in a the group of public servants and I thought it would be a lot higher, basically. Yeah, uh, but I did find that something that might, to some extent, explain it, but would need a bit more research to figure out if it's the case, is that there has been quite a lot of change. So there's been, what was it, about 11 or 13% change in the number of vice-chancellors over the last four years that have been from a comprehensive or a grammar school. And um, like Paul mentioned, 4% in the number that um, came from a uh, private school. So I kind of wonder as well to what extent it's to do with the changing makeup of vice-chancellors compared to perhaps more static professions over recent years because there has been a lot of news about vice chancellors a lot of exits on that basis and I wonder whether um, people that are coming into the role are perhaps a bit more diverse or if that's not the case and it's just kind of a coincidence because again it might, might be the issue of what we've seen in the media that we're extrapolating from but I think it's definitely worth looking into the changing makeup of vice chancellors to perhaps explain some of that. Yeah, and Paul, I guess, you know, one of the things that this doesn't pull out is that is that kind of career context where, you know, in in some cases, we, we have career structures that are still very much kind of jobs for life and people very slowly climb, whereas there's probably a bit more churn around HE. I think that's absolutely right, Jim. I mean, and 
we've seen an increasing trend in vice chancellors coming in from outside the sector as well, and indeed from overseas, because um, I think uh, around 17% of the, the vice chancellors are from, uh, were educated in other countries. So I think there's a, there's a lot more churn in there. I think the really significant thing in this as well, though, is about the, the kind of career track that gets you to be a vice chancellor. It is still very much an academic route. But in order to pursue that academic route, you, you have to, you know, go on the PhD track and then um, a series of you know potentially highly precarious postdoc positions before you you end up as a you know lecturer and then through to professor and then eventually um, uh, vice chancellor. But getting on that career track is far from straightforward for students, you know, particularly those from disadvantaged backgrounds. And and that's where I think that career services and universities have a um, a, a really big role to play in in ensuring that whatever student's background, that they have the opportunity to see all the career tracks in front of them and that actually an academic career, who knows, ultimately ending up as a vice chancellor, might be something that they could do as well. And, you know, that again comes down to career services seeing the issues around disadvantage as part of their job too. So it's not just about admissions, it's about careers advice in universities too. Yeah. And Aaron, look, uh, obviously, apart from, you know, kind of drawing a direct link between the PPE course at Oxford and, you know, being a politician, um, lots of the kind of professions that are in the data, there aren't automatic links, I guess, to subjects. But one that really stands out is the 65% of senior judges uh, were uh, schooled in independent schools and then 71% are from... Uh, Oxbridge and you know there's something going on there isn't there about the kind of diversity of subject choices within institutions as well as kind of institutional performance. Yes uh, the concentration as you say of the subject studied the type of school and the type of university that our senior judges have gone to is possibly the most alarming or at least the most striking statistic in the entire report. Uh, Indeed because our senior judiciary uh, need to have in, in many respects quite a deep and sophisticated understanding of society at large I mean frankly compare that to the schooling and the background of those that they might encounter in the judicial system, it will really be a very striking difference indeed. I think Artie's point also about how some professions are able to change and refresh and churn more obviously. Uh, Our judges are often long-standing, our members of the House of Lords are are not going to change very quickly. There is a real opportunity over the next five to ten years for those that have the responsibility for the recruitment of our vice-chancellors, and often that sits obviously with the Board of, of Governors, They need to be really mindful of the sorts of individuals that they're looking for and really task themselves to get a diverse pool of people that they're looking at when they're making their next appointment. And look, just before we move off this, Paul, here's here's a puzzle, right? So um, there's obviously a huge kind of access and participation and diversity agenda on universities that is accompanied by some fairly kind of detailed regulation. But one of the things that strikes me about lots of these professions is that there are also deep umbilical links into the kind of public sector uh, and at at the very least public-private partnerships. And is it that we can't see the huge pressure on those bits of the kind of problem that, you know, that are being exerted by others to kind of diversify? Or is it that, you know, all the pressure is on universities and and there's very little pressure on, you know, for example, the legal profession? Uh, That's an excellent question. I mean, I, I think the, the pressure comes in in a, in a different form, and um, I think in the you know in the in the, the legal area, I think I, lots of legal firms are doing their utmost to diversify their their, their intake. But when you've got that the, the, you know decades, indeed centuries, of entrenched practice and in many cases privilege, overcoming that I think is a, a much much bigger issue for them than it is uh, necessarily for universities. So they the 
they feel an internal pressure to change things, but it's not a regulatory pressure. I think the really hard thing is trying to, to link all this up, as you say, and, and try and address these things consistently from, uh, from, you know, top to bottom, cradle to grave, as it were. And I, I, I just think, you know, that's incredibly hard. And, t- and until you get, a, you know, a, a kind of government that is genuinely determined to, to tackle these issues, um, or it becomes top of the public agenda, I think it's, it's really difficult to see it being a genuinely joined up uh, approach. So universities have to do what they, they're doing and continue to do it and continue to work hard at it. But as you say, it's only part of a very big and challenging picture. There, there was one point I mentioned uh, that I thought was really intriguing. One vice chancellor doesn't have an undergraduate degree. Um, and whilst I, you know, I think that's, it doesn't, isn't necessarily at all problematic. I'm just genuinely surprised. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it, it's really instructive and, all credit to whoever it is for getting where they are. I think it's, you know, it's a really, really interesting development. So there you go. Out yourself, whoever you are, and we'll send you a wonky mug. Now, uh, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Claire Marchant, CEO at UCAS. And this week in Wonky, I explore why HE progression and the progression of men and women through to HE needs to be looked at more in the round. And perhaps looked at in terms of the whole education system. So looking back at Key Stage 2, an 8% difference in terms of boy and girl, male and female attainment. Looking forward past HE into postgraduate, how actually there's massive salary differentials between men and women. So we know five years post-graduation, that can be up to a third in areas like computer science. Finally, I look into what influences those choices, why are choices in different subjects being made, because very often that can drive those salary attainment levels post-graduation. And we know from UCAS's survey work that actually women are much more um, oriented to make choices around the level of work experience, the depth of work experience they might get at a university or college. Finally, I touch on the student hub that gets launched by UCAS in the autumn, and that being one of the tools that students can use to really start exploring perhaps options that previously they wouldn't have considered and opening up careers they previously would not have got into. Now, next up, her name is Leo, and she shows what you might earn. Yes, the Department for Education has published Longitudinal Education Outcomes, or LEO data, employment and earnings data for providers uh, across 2016 to 2017, broken down by subject and gender. Artie, what is the story in here? So... There's a similar story to what we've had in previous iterations of this, which is that uh, people earn a quite noticeably different amounts depending on the profession they're in on the basis of what they studied. However, the interesting thing to come out of this set of LEO data is that um, students who've studied, graduates who studied the same course at different universities have ended up with quite a range in their earnings. So uh, institutions offering uh, medicine and dentistry had meaning medium earnings uh, five five years after graduation. Can I say that again, please? I kept saying um. So institutions offering medicine and dentistry, their graduates had median median earnings five years after graduation of between forty two thousand seven hundred and fifty two thousand three hundred per annum. While median earnings for institutions offering economics, for example, had even bigger variation from about twenty two thousand to about sixty five thousand. So the Secretary of State has taken this to contribute to the arguments about why we need to secure value for money in higher education, basically saying that it's an issue if students are paying the same fees for a certain course and ending up with vastly different salaries depending on where they studied it. Um, What I think is really interesting is that these 
disparities are so obvious so soon after because five years is really not that long into a career to be seeing these kind of differences but I also don't know if it was that well judged for DFE to wade into this as part of the value for money debate because to kind of start to say that to start to even imply that the institution that you go to can have these kind of effects and that's something that we should then have an opinion on and therefore perhaps regulate with policy just seems at odds with their kind of um, discourse around autonomy. So I kind of, I'm not sure if that was the best angle to take on it, but I do think that it's going to be a, a, topic, a topic of discussion on the on graduate earnings and how, and sort of how different providers are valued in the marketplace, I suppose, if that's what you can take from it. Paul, I guess we're back to the first point here, but I mean, it's strange this, isn't it? Because on the one hand, at least in theory, the message from government is if your graduates aren't earning the kind of top numbers, you need to cause them to. But then on the other hand, there's something going on here which kind of suggests that the solution is everyone packs into one of six universities near the top, and that's obviously not possible. Yeah, I mean, it's the the danger of using a a single indicator as a, a proxy for, well, everything to do with higher education and um, the idea that uh, somehow it is just the salary of a subset of graduates five years after graduation that somehow defines uh, in toto the quality of the student experience, the quality of the education provided and the quality of their contribution to the economy is just you know, palpable nonsense. And uh, so I, I think it's really, really dangerous to view this data in isolation. Yes, it is interesting. Yes, the, the variations between subjects are interesting. The, the scale of the variances between the, um, the highest and the lowest earners are interesting. But they're part of a really, really complex higher education landscape, which I, I have to say, I think the Secretary of State is, is very unwise um, to focus on this as a, a stick with which to beat the sector um, and you know it's it just doesn't really help it's it's one indicator in a, in a very complex landscape so you know I, I think you know people who are you know studying health and social care at Blackburn College who are right down there at the bottom of the list really shouldn't be thinking that actually you know this is something that matters in the scheme of things at the end of the day yes everyone wants to progress in their career everyone wants to get a good salary but where you are now the salary you're earning uh, now after five years, it doesn't necessarily mean you had a bad education or you're not contributing or you're not happy. Aaron, set aside the issues from a kind of individual student perspective for a second. I guess some of the framing in Augur that this talks to would, would effectively say, look, if there's a big taxpayer subsidy going in and there are some graduates that are earning, you know, very little and are on what, you know, some people would describe as worthless degrees, that there are arguably other things that we should have spent that money on. Let's be honest, this preoccupation with LEO data is not a question of value for money for the students so much. The primary driver here is value for money for the government. That's why so much research has been commissioned and that's why we continue to get this emphasis on analysing the uh, earnings data of graduates uh, now five years post their graduation. There is a serious point about understanding the value for money for the individual as well. And of course, there will be graduates on certain disciplines who don't get close to um, crossing the 23,000 as proposed threshold for uh, repayment. And there does need to be an understanding of what the cost to that individual will be. But let's be under no illusion. The preoccupation with this interest in LEO data is because the government wants to understand its own value for money. I don't really think it's about the value for money for the students that pass through our higher education system. 
Artie, we of course recall Sam Jima roaming around the country calling up Britain. Uh, and of course, there's a, there's a whole kind of seam of work in this, isn't there, which says if you give students data, uh, they can make choices. But I guess one of the things that has started to emerge in, you know, to some extent in Augur and now is that a, a kind of sense that the government is frustrated that it keeps telling students that they're not going to earn much, but they still keep enrolling on programmes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it partly goes to show that the cultural kind of understandings are much more important than the actual data, because I don't remember as, as a prospective student looking up data before entering university, even knowing what I was supposed to be looking at, what the government was suggesting we look at to make choices. I probably went more on um, kind of general perceptions based on culture surrounding uh, universities and what my parents thought and what my school and certain teachers had told me. And those are all much more valuable. And I think that they still are much more valuable to a lot of students. So it's much more worth kind of understanding where students, how students are actually making their decisions and probably improving the kind of information they have off the basis of what they're already using rather than kind of thinking you can change how students make their decisions and then being confused when they don't. And, and Paul, obviously, you know, the, 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 the Treasury wants some of the money back and the amount that uh, is loaned out to students that comes back is important. But if I look at all of the other indicators around kind of careers and what happens to people in their 20s and so on, I'm starting to think that measuring you know, anything five years out is daft. Uh, absolutely. Um, it is, it's just very, very narrow and, um, and just it, it's, it's just it's too soon as well. And also, it's just a single dimensional reflection of people's contribution to society. It is not just about the uh, earnings. It's not just about the tax they pay, but it's about their contribution to society as a whole. Five years is, is a heck of a short time. Lots of people are still trying to find their feet and establish what their career choices are going to be. If you're in the profession, you know where you're going. If you're a medic or a dentist or a lawyer, you may well know where you're going. But for lots and lots of graduates, actually, they're still finding their feet and trying to decide what career path they want to follow and it may be a you know a multifaceted path anyway but i mean it's just you know treasury government will go for whatever indicators they can get and they'll latch upon them um with enthusiasm and uh, and zeal and draw um conclusions from them can i say one other thing about the uh, about the information for students because you know the Part of the narrative, as you rightly point out, Jim, is the the idea that if you provide more and better information for potential students, then they will be able to make better informed decisions and that somehow this will help promote competition within the sector. Uh, as we will recall, uh, last year, the Department for Education launched an exciting competition to develop um, two uh, new apps to uh, help students make better choices on what and where to study. And uh, these are now out and available to uh, play with, at least one of them uh, in beta, the other one may be fully developed. I've had a go, and um, you know, I have to say, I don't think they're going to really transform the landscape. Um, uh, you know, no one loves a nice app more than I do, but in terms of helping you make life choices, uh, there is no substitute for professional, intelligent tailored careers advice which of course doesn't exist on the whole in our um, pre-18 education system anymore and frankly uh, a gamified choice routes through to uh, a graduate career and um, uh, do you prefer a campus or a city-based university questionnaire type thing I think has some way to go to fill in that gap. 
<laughs> on the day they came out, I was playing with one of them, and, and I, I thought it was roughly as useful as Spotify's Discover Weekly algorithm. And the thing about that is, it's one thing for me to get annoyed on the train into work at Wonky, because Spotify thinks I don't know about ABBA's Waterloo. It's quite, it's quite another to be making, you know, huge life choices off the back of, you know, this kind of, uh, well, nonsense. Uh, anyone else got anything? Yeah, just something quick. I just, um, I was just thinking when Paul, you were saying about um, how short five years is as a timeline for this kind of thing. It just kind of, um, it also seems a little bit outdated in the sense that it doesn't seem to really kind of acknowledge the fact that, um, especially as you mentioned with with people that are, haven't done kind of professional degrees that would lead them directly into one occupation, is the kind of value of horizontal career changes or career switch ups completely, which are just much more of a facet of kind of finding your feet in your career now and um, they have a lot of value and they mean that when you can maybe when you do get into a certain career you can probably that that experience that you've had doesn't go to waste it you might you know and a lot more a lot quicker not that that's the only relevant measure but it just doesn't seem to have enough nuance to understand exactly where different people are in their careers that's actually very interesting Artie because because uh, of course there was resolution uh, foundation data the other week that said that one of the things that's happening is that graduates are moving jobs less than we think because there are few because the benefit of shifting to another city given the cost of rent uh, is kind of dissipating and, and, and that speaks to the kind of David Willett's point, doesn't it, Aaron, that, you know, when you look at Leo data, one of the things you're looking at is economic performance. You're not necessarily looking at student performance or even university performance. Yes, I mean, that's one of David Willett's his big arguments. And, and actually, one of uh, the Leo data could be seen as quite positive news, given that, you know, we're only a, a decade after the, uh, the, the big recession, 2009. Actually, earnings data is holding up reasonably well. But you're right, it's so much more complicated than simply, you know, how good your higher education was and what you go on to do. There's um, the uh, geographic conditions, there's regional uh, variation, but more importantly, uh, this this assumes that most people are, are motivated by money. Lots of graduates are looking at, you know, what's interesting to them and uh, that they will pursue a career that's personally fulfilling rather than financially uh, rewarding. Can I just say one more thing about um, about these exciting apps is that, uh, like you, I got frustrated. I tried to reverse engineer a career in higher education administration. Um, <laughs> And uh, and failed dismally, um, and ended up as a shop assistant, which I I thought was quite special. Well, as you know, I've been collecting uh, true crime on campus reports from our wonderful campus security team here at the University of Nottingham over many, many years now. And uh, universities remain exciting and challenging places to work. Many students and staff and visitors have no idea what goes on in the dark underbelly of campus life, but our security team find out everything. And we have an ever-increasing set of case notes in the True Crime on Campus files brought to you here live on Wonky. 2325 report that a picture had been taken off the wall in the hall by a pirate. The pirate had gone in the direction of the mooch bar. Security attended the mooch bar where they found over 40 pirates, none of whom had the picture. 2025 report of a group of 50 students stealing microwaves, ironing boards and toasters from the hall. Security attended. The group were located on the downs and a number of the group were stopped and details were taken. A number of this group were dressed in their underwear or naked. The compliance and operations manager was informed. 
0005. Report that a guest in Crips Annex couldn't find his room. The guest had been drinking. Officers attended. The guest stated he was in room 9. The officers looked at his key, which stated he was in room 6. He had the key fob upside down. And don't forget, the book True Crime on Campus is available from all good and a number of bad bookshops. Now, let's see who else has been blogging for us this week. Hi, this is James Wilson at the University of Sheffield. Um, I'm ringing to talk about the piece that Netta Weinstein and I wrote uh, this week for Wonky, um, based on the initial findings of a project called the Real Time Ref Review. This is a, a, a an evaluation of the uh, current 2021 Research Excellence Framework uh, and an attempt to see whether the reforms that uh, were introduced to the REF following the uh, Stern Review in 2016 have actually changed uh, any aspects of the exercise and the way it's experienced by um, researchers at the front line. Um, so the, the article sort of sets this in the context of the current debate over QR funding, which is obviously hotting up uh, once again. Um, and talks about the rationale for the real-time ref review project, basically that often in debates about the ref, uh, those who shout loudest tends to tend to uh, dominate the uh, terms of discussion. Uh, we felt it would be valuable to get a more distributed picture uh, of how the ref's playing out, um, hence uh, the real-time review, um, and to do so while the ref is ongoing rather than waiting until the whole exercise finishes. Um, so the article sums up some of the uh, views that emerge from that. Basically, people don't like the ref. We knew that already. Uh, but their views aren't as perhaps as viscerally uh, hostile as one might sometimes uh, take to be the case from media coverage of the ref. Um, and we talk particularly about the positive aspects of the new ref, uh, the new rules that people have uh, seemed to warm towards, particularly its approach to open access, open research, um, and its more flexible approach to um, outputs uh, uh, relative to, to individuals. So some positives uh, amidst uh, uh, the broader picture, and I hope that an exercise like this can be used by Research England to inform uh, the next ref whenever that may be uh, imposed upon us. Now, next up, we're going to talk about free speech. But before we get into that, it's advert time. And I want to tell you about wonky students' unions. Representing students and contributing to policy effectively has never been easy. Uh, but these days, it's really tough. HE policy can be complex, confusing and constantly changing. Uh, we sometimes take for granted just how impenetrable the sector's language and structures are for anyone, let alone student officers that have just been elected and won't have the luxury of a year to bed in. We know that student officers and staff that understand the environment and the issues are more effective, they get more done and they make a bigger contribution to the life of our sector. And given Wonky is all about finding and promoting diverse voices, we've launched Wonky Student Unions. Uh, we produce weekly policy briefings and beginner's guides on key issues in HE, a bespokely weekly, a bespokely, <laughs> a bespoke weekly news service for SUs featuring <laughs> the latest developments, news coverage, analysis and opportunities for unions, as well as access to a dedicated discussion group and news alerts. And subscribers can take advantage of training, take part in dedicated webinars on key issues that unions will be discussing with institutions, as well as being able to access the team here at Wonky with questions and queries. So if your institution is serious about student representation and engagement, your student union really should be signed up. To find out more, go to wonky.com forward slash SUs. Now, next up, the UK's prevent strategy is the single biggest threat to free speech on campus. That's one of the assertions in a new paper published this week by the Higher Education Policy Institute. It says that prevent is a much bigger threat than media caricatures of snowflake students, according to a director of Liberty. Aaron, give us an overview of this one. 
Well, it's yet another contribution to the ongoing debate, as it were, about free speech and censorship on campus. Um, the report uh, recognises the concerns of those who wish to restrict free speech as a way of protecting others, but concludes that restrictions on free speech usually end up being counterproductive. Uh, it does, as you say, um, actually points the finger much more towards the government's own prevent strategy uh, than is able to find, uh, or at least evidence, any real issues of uh, restrictions of free speech on campus. Um, Given there's a large volume of literature now on the extent to which there is or there isn't uh, a, a real issue of free speech on our campuses, this is, I would say, on the more thoughtful end of the spectrum. But I would say perhaps it doesn't offer us, a, offer us any sort of tantalising new angle. Uh, and perhaps it's most important to remind ourselves that it, it quotes the House of Lords Select Committee inquiry, uh, which says that there doesn't really appear to be any major issue. So it really begs for me the question, why are we still talking about whether there's an issue of free speech on campus or not. Paul, is there an issue with free speech on campus or not? I mean, I, I will say a little more on that, but um, I, I think it's always dangerous to look over, over to the US for um, guidance on this because the, the legal context is very, very different there. Um, the legal framework in the UK, the critical one for us is the 1986 Act, which of course was brought in um, to stop universities and students' unions in particular from... Uh, uh, preventing uh, conservative ministers speaking uh, on campus. And I'm, I'm afraid I'm old enough to remember the introduction of that act and the, the controversy it caused at the time. But actually, in practice, over the years, it has, it has surprisingly served us reasonably well um, and hasn't you know, prevented things in a way that all the kind of stuff and the uh, commentary from previous ministers has suggested that there has been a huge problem. There really, really hasn't. Having said that... Prevent is a new dimension. Um, Human Rights Act is a new dimension. But uh, I do think that the 1986 Act um, does still hold good and that gives us a good framework for ensuring that we enable uh, free speech on the whole to be supported and protected. Prevent, it's often suggested, has a chilling effect. The chilling effect only works if you let it. And I think it's really, really important for universities to remain confident and robust in enabling people to speak in what is the most uh, open and conducive example of uh, free speech in our country. Artie, it strikes me that one of the things that the paper does, which is what so much of this debate does, is conflate what I might call the way we treat each other on campus with the discussion of complex ideas. And it seems to me that you, we aren't free to, you know, tear chunks out of each other or be racist to each other. But of course, we're free to discuss academic concepts. There isn't that much of a line, I suppose, because even when you're, because if you're talking about speaker events, for example, um, you'll be talking about ideologies and kind of um, the difference between academic concepts and kind of just treating people with respect is not actually that clear in the sense that if you're talking about certain ideologies, that might have implications for what you think about certain people's um, existence, basically, or what kind of you, what what you think of certain people's place in society. And that's kind of not a direct, um, direct or targeted at any individual person, but it's still, by talking about those concepts, you're still potentially invalid, invalidating someone, um, someone's kind of something quite fundamental about them. So I think that the issue comes from the fact that it is difficult to separate those two things. Although I do think that the areas where they overlap are very, very small in comparison to all of the things that are discussed at university, all of the areas of kind of academic 
interest. Um, so it's important to recognize that these kind of overlaps are really genuinely very small. And so I do think it is, like you said, it is an issue to conflate them. But I disagree in the sense that I think the areas where they are overlapping is where the battleground is. And Aaron, Artie's got a point, hasn't she? So, you know, universities and what they teach and how they teach it aren't free from kind of social, you know, kind of social norms and social concepts and trends and so on. And aren't those that are kind of campaigning and calling for certain speakers to be restricted or banned, aren't they just kind of themselves expressing their free speech and influencing the way in which society's views develop? Yes, and the report to a large degree points out of course that uh, those who are from sort of per- persecuted uh, groups and, and minority uh, groups are often those that are at the front line of, uh, of, of campaigning against certain uh, individuals and, and that's to be expected because they're the ones who will feel this uh, most most prominently um, uh, as ever with these things it, you know there's a really fine line uh, to, 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 um, to, to, to tread here um, you know when someone uh, is invited with controversial views uh, within the parameters of the law. They largely uh, should be allowed to, to speak, but equally those that um, don't want to listen to them or want to uh, voice their opposition to them are perfectly and equally entitled to that perspective as well. As I say, I, I think the biggest problem with this whole issue has often been the reporting, or I might say the misreporting of what has gone on on a lot of our campuses. Uh, where students have chosen to uh, ignore someone or protest against someone, and that's led to uh, a, an invitation being withdrawn, that is sometimes then... Um, uh, portrayed as uh, uh, as free speech not being granted when uh, it's a lot more complicated than that and there's a responsibility on those that report around free speech to really understand what it is that they're talking about all right all i was just going to say is that i i think that the you know, whilst the situation is, as Aaron describes, nowhere near um, as bad as is often portrayed by, you know, the extreme uh, I was going to say the extreme wings of government and spiked, but um, both government and spiked, um, there are really no grounds for complacency. And it's one of those things that actually requires eternal vigilance on campus to ensure that, you know, actually free speech is protected uh, and that students feel safe and secure. Um, and it's just it just one of those things you've got to keep on top of all the time. Yes, but... I- well, I, I agree with Paul, but equally, I, I struggle to think of any other institutions in UK society where there is as much free speech as there is in our universities. Yeah. So again, that, that's part of the mix too. Yeah, and, and this is the this is the point that friend of the show Charles Heyman always makes, isn't it? Which is, you know, if you look at Auger and the fifty percent that don't go to university, who's out protecting kind of spaces where people can have free and open debate? There, uh, there's an awful lot of scrutiny on uh, higher education and, and and little elsewhere. Now, good, uh, it's time for yes but does it correlate folks here to set this week's correlation question is wonky's associate editor david kernahan's son ben hello it's ben again my dad's just back but i think he's asleep so here's one more correlation question from me some academics get paid a lot of money and i think that might be in places that have a lot of money saved up so i've compared the percentage of academic staff that earn more than sixty thousand pounds with institutional reserves at 31st of july 2018 do you need lots of savings to pay big salaries? Does it correlate? Um, uh, no, it doesn't correlate. Uh, why? Why? Because I don't think it does. Well, because I think reserves are a misleading indicator of institutional performance or indeed ability to pay large salaries. Uh, uh, I'd say that there's there's probably a 
moderate a moderate correlation between the universities with the biggest reserves um you know they will be at the older end of the spectrum they will probably have a subject um mix that includes medicine uh, that typically has a lot more of the hi- more highly paid uh, staff so i think there might be just about enough evidence to uh, offer, to be able to draw some kind of line through the chart that makes sense Ooh. i don't think it correlates i don't i don't think it correlates and for no reason Brilliant. <laughs> the answer is no. Our squared is 0.13, so there's very little relationship between the two. It's overwhelmingly the Russell Group with the big balances. Just look at Edinburgh, Oxford and Cambridge. But all kinds of places pay big salaries. I think you need to for professors and senior leaders. It's an interesting graph, so do have a look at the show page. And finally, Research England has published research reporting on a pilot study which explores the views of academic staff and research managers in four institutions on the REF. Artie, what does it say? So I think this is a really interesting one because it um, basically it actually spoke to academics. It's got just under 600 academics participating and it's found that the responses to REF are moderately unpopular. So they're moderately negative responses. Um, however, there are certain good things. So um, where REF meets with approval among academics is its impact on open research practice and open access publication. However, there's something that academics struggled with or said they struggled with in the in the survey is that they felt somewhat pressured to drive performance in REF for their institutions. And more worryingly, in my opinion, is that they felt it had some kind of effect on their autonomy, autonomy to pick and tailor completely their own research interests. So they felt, in other words, to some extent, they had to alter their focus based on performing better in these metrics. Um, so I think that's probably a worrying outcome. It seems depressingly similar in the sense that when metrics are introduced, there's always a kind of worry as to how you can perform better in these metrics. But I think it's also, um, it's the responsibility when choosing these metrics to kind of forecast what these effects might be and try and avert them or at least have certain areas that you safeguard from these kind of impacts. And it's uh, it's a shame that some, some academics, at least the ones surveyed, feel that they've had to in any way change their uh, research focus in order to perform better in these metrics. Paul, there's a fine line here, isn't there? Because on the one hand, you want you know academic freedom, academics to be able to kind of follow their nose and and discover things. But on the other hand, the taxpayer needs bang for buck. Yeah, and I, I think that when uh, research assessment started back in um, whenever it was <laughs> a long time ago, um, I think 1992, something like that. I mean, the, the aim was to to very much focus on uh, more valuable. Uh, or targeted investment and research to deliver um, wider economic benefit. Uh, but I, I think the reality is there's still you know a huge amount of freedom within universities for individuals and teams and institutions themselves to focus on areas that they want to focus on, which they think are you know gaps in terms of uh, public knowledge or uh, are fertile grounds for for future um, you know uh, research. So there are lots of opportunities still, but you know there is a research framework there 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 you have to in order to access larger amounts of public money to go through a formal assessment process and ensure that you are delivering the outputs which are expected for the money so it is a it is more of a, a balanced picture i'm genuinely surprised by the um the the relatively balanced uh, views of this panel of 600 researchers i have to say because you know a lot of the narrative is very very negative and 
And yes, there are many challenges. Yes, there are some negative feelings here, but it's not nearly as, as cataclysmic as I, I have to say I would have expected it given all of the public discourse. Aaron, I guess one of the things that strikes me about this is that quite often, you know, government or an arm of government will introduce some kind of measure. And then in order to kind of perform well in the measure, there is some good behaviour on it on the part of institutions and some bad behaviour. And I can never really call whether the problem is the measure and we should have predicted the bad behaviour or whether it's the bad behaviour itself. Yeah, I think that's the, in a way, that's the most interesting angle to, to think about this, because um, as you say, on the one hand, we've got kind of government and we've got uh, uh, research, um, uh, we've got the research rules being set at a national level, but it's how institutions choose to interpret it. And I think uh, it's the extent to which some institutions have really perhaps driven quite a, um, uh, quite a stringent, tight um, internal culture and framework, which perhaps has in some respects uh, led to higher degrees of dissatisfaction, whereas in some institutions, I guess there's a freer, more open um, approach. Uh, on the one hand, it will be interesting then to see whether the institutions that perhaps have a more defined approach have that has actually led to uh, improved uh, research income and, and, and better uh, ratings in the exercise um, compared to those that have perhaps taken a more open approach. But um, I, I think it's more interesting to think about how individual institutions have chosen to interpret the rules by which everyone is playing to. Universities exist in part to conduct research which will benefit, you know, society and humanity, right? And um, this exercise is about, you know, assessing essentially the the value of investment made by government in that enterprise. But there remains, um, you know, real latitude for institutions to uh, to continue to do the right thing here. And simply chasing uh, results through this kind of exercise is counterproductive in the long run and uh, and I think most universities now recognize that the rules now recognize that and actually it's much more about you know rewarding genuine quality where it exists and I, I think that's a move in the right direction and, and and to be supported and probably indicates shows why a higher proportion are more positively disposed towards the the new framework than in the past so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via itunes or your favorite android podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the wonky show do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so huge thanks to paul aaron and Artie, everyone at team wonky for making it happen and until next week speak freely Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.